You're listening to episode 63 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, in which a computer snafu comes at an oddly opportune time for Dave to present something entirely different. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to episode 63 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder, but as always, you can call me Dave. And usually this show is all about reading Daredevil comics, enjoying Daredevil comics, and talking about Daredevil comics. However, that's not the case this week. Before I get into why and what this episode is going to entail, I just want to give myself maybe a little pat on the back. Since I called Charles Soule writing Daredevil, and this week it was announced that he will be the new writer, and we're going to see a storyline in which Daredevil is tutoring what looks to be Gambit, but I have heard very strong opinions that it is not. So whoever this character is, they look like Gambit, but they're not Gambit. So, wait and see until after Secret Wars. As for what this week entails, well, it's kind of a tale of sadness, really. My computer, which has been with me since the beginning of this show, since really shortly after I started Superman Forever Radio, has died. It went on the fritz. So I've brought in a new computer, which is a sting to the pocketbook, but excites me because it's a laptop and I've worked on a desktop for so long, and this is going to change quite a bit of how I am able to do this show. Now, what happened was I transferred all of the episode files I had to date, because typically I record ahead as far as the meat of the show, and then come in later to introduce it, etc. So I had several episodes up to episode 67 backed up, ready to go. And I was able to get the computer on long enough to transfer these files. Now, this was in two waves. This week's episode, the original episode 63, however, was in both the first and second wave. When I overrode it, it fried the file. It completely corrupted it. Ruined. No coming back. The other episodes are fine. But this week's episode was shredded. So there went that. And it happened to be late in a week when, well, I mean, I'm losing time due to computer issues, getting everything set up. As for the issue that was originally covered, uh, it really wasn't anything special. I was really kind of unhappy with it. Not the worst thing I'll ever cover, but definitely not the best. It just didn't excite me, so maybe it was kismet. So it is what it is, but that left me with a gap. I had nothing for this week. Now, I could rearrange episodes, so 64 could be 63, etc., but that causes a lot of problems. It's a big chain reaction. And that also becomes very counterproductive. So I started looking for something else. Now, I want to take this moment before I jump into that something else to mention that you will hear some deviation in sound levels over the next few weeks. Switching to a new computer plus a new version of Audacity, the recording and editing software, means kind of calibrating the the levels of my microphone. For those that are interested, it is a Blue Yeti microphone. Now, you've heard of a microphone that picks up a room as being hot. If that was the case, this microphone would be magma. So it's often tricky to try to get the sound levels right, where you hear me clearly, I'm not busting your eardrums, but I'm also not a murmur. And that takes at least a few episodes to get everything settled in, so that's why you'll hear some deviation. Um, I'm going to be working to perfect it if the sound level's not passable, it just won't release the episode, I'll re-record until it works. So, getting to the point, what am I going to do this week? Well, in transferring these uh, files, these podcast files, I happen to find a file on something I worked on, just a random idea, sort of a pilot episode, if you will, for what I was going to do 
as a hidden track style podcast. The plan was to do this show basically after the credits of a random episode of Dave's Daredevil podcast for several episodes. So you would hear the Daredevil episode, credits, silence, the show after the fact. So a little bonus episode, but I kind of shredded it. And that show was covering the Jack Kirby run on Captain America from the 70s. It's well documented that I do love Captain America. I love that Kirby run. It was just something that, well, kind of fell to the wayside as better, bigger ideas came along. And I'm not ready to expound on those, but it may be something you're going to see in 2016. And as my brain was scrambling for exactly what I was going to do, thinking about that file and realizing this weekend is 4th of July weekend, Independence Day here in the U.S., I could think of no other better way to celebrate than Captain America. So this ended up being a very happy accident. So what you'll be hearing after the break is the full episode as I edited it. Again, it's like a pilot episode. So due to the time constraints of moving to the new computer and getting this episode back up and running, so I get everything else running going forward, I haven't had time to sit down and read the emails for this week. For that, I apologize, but I will be back on track next week. So I'm going to play a quick promo for Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast after that. The episode of the Captain America show will play in full. I decided not to edit, not to touch it, just to present it as the idea sketch that it was. So I will be back next week covering Daredevil number 66, in which Daredevil travels to California and finds himself in the middle of a literal soap opera. Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Writer Robert Kaniger and artist Carmine Infantino created Black Canary in 1947. She debuted as a masked femme fatale that kind of skirted the law, but pretty quickly she evolved into a civic-minded crime fighter. She has mastered multiple martial arts disciplines and unarmed combat forms. Her canary crime, when properly focused, is powerful enough to punch a hole through a wall. Black Canary has, in one form or another, been part of multiple incarnations of the Justice League, the Justice Society, and Birds of Prey. I freaking fell in love with Black Canary, and I'm proud to podcast about her adventures in comics and television. Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. True Believers, welcome to Dave's Captain America Spectacular, a podcast miniseries. I am J. David Weeder. You can call me Dave, and I am the Sentinel of Sentiment this week, taking you on a journey through the Captain America tales of the 70s from the mind and pen of Jack King Kirby. Now, since this show is officially a spinoff of Dave's Daredevil podcast, 
If you want a long thesis on who I am, what I do, why I do what I do, I shall point you to the first episode of that particular show. But a very basic summary, I read comics, I digest them, I dissect them, I talk about them in depth. As stated, I normally host Dave's Daredevil podcast, and I talk about, well, Daredevil. But for this, I plan to focus exclusively on Captain America and the Falcon. As usual, I'm going to be doing a standard synopsis of the issues included and then moving into my notes, and we'll be doing two issues per episode, with the exception of, well, one episode down the line. So to set your expectation of exactly what this series will be doing, for the next 13 episodes I will be running through the 70s run of Jack Kirby on Captain America. I will be covering Captain America issues 193 to 214, Captain America annuals 3 and 4, and the Treasury Edition Captain America Bicentennial Battles. With very few exceptions, I am going in basically the order that the trade lists it in, because I think that alleviates some headache. So how did this particular show come to be? It's definitely unique, it kind of came out of nowhere. Well, I wanted to talk about Captain America. That's that plain and simple. I love Captain America, I think he's one of the best Marvel characters. And of course, with the Winter Soldier movie of 2014 and the Avengers Age of Ultron in 2015, his profile is pretty high at the moment. So if you want to levy the charge that I am riding the coattails of the movie, okay, fair enough. Secondly, the Captain America I'm looking at from the 70s, specifically the Jack Kirby run, were issues I read on the front steps of my little white house when I was about 8 or 9. The house sat on a little hill. Sidewalk at the ground level, hill led up, there's a walkway to my house, the stairs led from the sidewalk to the walkway. That was, as I call it, my perch, or my stoop. It's where I read tons of comics that I found in the American Legion without covers. Mostly a swatch from the late 70s, but a few here and there 80s issues. So, since this is a spin-off of sorts from Dave's Daredevil podcast, it made sense that these two characters have this similar origin point in terms of the material that introduced me to them, or at least in a grander scale in terms of Captain America, and kind of informed how I would view the characters going forward. So this was the Captain America that I read on those steps, a few here and there issues, but it left a distinctive mark on my brain. So, it became the focus of the show. But the final reason is, it was really the last batch of Captain America stories worked on by one of the original creators. Joe Simon had long cut ties with Marvel, and Kirby, well, he never really came back to Captain America after this. Which is kind of sad in a way. But Kirby takes us on a journey. That I can say for sure. At times, these stories feel so far out of left field, you may find yourself scratching your head. But that odd nature is exactly what fascinated me when I popped these comics open as a kid. Now, for the very few of you who need a primer on Captain America, the basic story is this. Steve Rogers wanted to serve his country in World War II, but he was too puny, so he volunteered for an experiment that turned him into a super soldier, an experiment that could not be repeated thanks to Nazi saboteurs. Cap went off to fight Nazis in World War II with his partner Bucky, but along the way he fell onto some ice and went into suspended animation, awakening in the 60s a man out of time. Currently, he has partnered with the Falcon in these issues. I'm going to talk a bit more about that when we get in-depth. But that's the basic overview of the show. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. It's Dave, it's Captain America, and it's Jack Kirby. The Cap and Kirby parts are pretty win, but then there's me to contend with. But you know what? The show is free. So, I'm not going to delay this any further. This week, we're going to be looking at Captain America and the Falcon issues 193 and 194. 
Without further ado, let us jump right in. Captain America number 193 bore a January 1976 cover date. This was the much-heralded return of Jack Kirby to Marvel, having been away working for DC Comics, creating the new gods, and much more over there. Kirby returning to the house he helped build was kind of a big deal, and it was definitely teased. It was announced at a con, one of the biggest creator things to happen during this time frame. Definitely a lot of attention. And the cover to this comic actually even exclaims, King Kirby is back and greater than ever. And you know what? I believe that's somewhat true. It's just completely unlikely that any other creator could bring this much hype to the table. But Kirby actually makes Cap the center of attention of the cover. Cap is bouncing at the reader, shield in hand, ready to fight, and he looks glorious. So glorious that it takes the viewer a moment to realize what's actually happening on the cover. Because this is a scene. Because Cap, being front and center, is followed by a fleeing falcon, as a crowd of angry citizens chase them. And we're talking pitchfork and torch. Straight up Frankenstein fire bad type villagers. Beyond that, the city they're in is in ruins. It's burning and the ominous text reads, Mad Bomb, it can destroy the world. I will note that I will call this Captain America number 193 simply because the Falcon's name does not appear on the cover. However, going forward, every regular issue, I will make sure to include the Falcon, and I'll tell you why momentarily. But what a dynamic way to enter a new era, a visual treat of Captain America in a hero shot that slowly dissolves to a new scene, and it really baits the reader into the story. It's a complete success. As a standard practice for this show, I will be taking synopses from the official index to the Marvel Universe, the Captain America edition, because it just streamlines what I want to do with the show. If you want, you can knock me for not writing my own synopses, but I'm working smarter, not harder. The first story we're looking at is The Mad Bomb Screamer in the Brain, written and penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Frank Giacoya, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Janice Cohen. It is reprinted in Captain America and the Falcon Mad Bomb trade paperback, which I checked on MyComicShop.com, a.k.a. Lone Star Comics. That'll run you about $15.99, and it collects Captain America 193 to 200 Basically, our whole first leg for this show. So, from the official index to the Marvel Universe, the synopsis goes thus. At the apartment of the Falcon's girlfriend, Layla Taylor, Captain America and Falcon are suddenly overcome with madness and hate. They initially fight, but come to their senses. While Falcon restrains a similarly maddened Leela, Cap goes outside to a raging mob. He finds a small device wedged between buildings. Although he again succumbs to the madness, he still destroys the device with his shield, ending the riot. Soon after, a shield agent joins Cap and Falcon and calls the shattered device a Mad Bomb. He takes them to Mad Bomb Control, a secret government base, leading them to a panic course, a lethal obstacle course. Successfully emerging from the panic course, the heroes meet Henry, the Secretary of State, who has tested them to confirm they are indeed Cap and Falcon. He tells them of two smaller mad bombs, dubbed Peanut and Dumpling, that devastated the towns of Miners Junction and River City, respectively. Then he shows them a photo smuggled out by a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, killed in the process, revealing Big Daddy, a mad bomb big enough to destroy the United States, which the government thinks is time to go off for the Bicentennial. So, jumping into the story and looking at it closer, we open to this first page of a screaming mouth yelling at Cap and Falcon who are holding their ears. 
like the eardrums are bursting. This definitely sets the mood and tone of the story we're going to be looking at, because, well, it looks very 70s. It looks like a prog rock band cover. It's almost like Mick Jagger is screaming at them. It's very effective, but then we jump into the story itself, and we start with Captain America and the Falcon hanging out, arm wrestling. And I like this. I like that this is where we start because these two are not just partners, they're friends. They hang out, admittedly, in their costumes in their spare time. And I think that's a very good basis for a partnership. Because it shows they do actually enjoy each other's company. And I think that's fantastic. Now, that simple arm wrestling match turns to violence pretty quickly, and I guess Leela shouldn't have switched the coffee with decaf. Because Cap never has a second cup of coffee at home. But Kirby's facial expressions are intense, to put a fine word on it. To simply say that Cap and Falcon look angry at each other is very, very much an understatement. They look like they are frothing with rage, and they might just rip each other's faces off. And this escalates in seconds. Just a few words are exchanged, and then the table's flipped over and they're at each other, and luckily, they get their head together. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Falcon Beyond last year's Winter Soldier movie, the Falcon first appeared as Sam Wilson in Captain America number 117, an interesting story where Cap was found on an island, pretty much the island from Lost, to be honest with you. It's pretty darn close. Lost and a little confused because, well, he'd switched bodies with the Red Skull. The reason? The Cosmic Cube. Don't try to make logic out of the Cosmic Cube, it just does what it needs to do. But Sam had been trapped there for a while, dealing with the other inhabitants of the island, and Cap, seeing potential in Sam, trained him in judo and fighting. Now, when Falcon donned his costume, this ugly green thing, his initial costume was terrible, he didn't have his wings. Those came a little bit later. He was just a driven fighter trained by Cap, but he did have a psychic connection with his Falcon, an actual literal Falcon named Red Wing. Now, it turns out, Sam was manipulated by the Red Skull to forget his criminal past. See, Snap was originally a trafficker called Snap Wilson. And just to mess with Captain America and the Falcon's partnership, the Skull made Snap remember his past. Now, the Red Skull's goal may have been to ruin the partnership, but you know what? It actually made it stronger. And there was actually a trial, which, as this issue opens, says, well, it's just over. The wings came in a little bit later. They came courtesy of the Black Panther, T'Challa, leader of Wakanda. And from the description from that issue, they are described as being light, super strong, jet-powered at the tips, and charged by sunlight, and they are also controlled by a link to Sam's brain. I made a statement that I will refer to the book going forward as Captain America and the Falcon, and I will stand by that because Falcon is a worthy partner. He's more than proven himself. In fact, when Captain America died in 2006-2007, a friend of mine pitched me on who should take over the shield. My immediate answer was the Falcon. He's the only one that Steve has a real reason to trust. A proven track record, he's had his back time and time again and always will. I'm a big fan of the Falcon, and he was one of the reasons I was drawn to cover this material. And not for nothing, just for education's sake, I will point out that the Falcon was designed off of O.J. Simpson. Bear in mind, when that design idea came through, O.J. Simpson was a successful football player, extremely successful and well-known and respected, where today he's known for, well, a white Bronco and a car chase. So, setting that awkward bit aside, Falcon's pretty awesome. And he also has this girlfriend, Leela. And then she snaps. She comes at him with a knife, which, again, this escalates very quickly. 
This is the moment when the issue hits stride because a brick comes through the window. It's a bit of a slow reveal that happens fairly quickly. I know that's paradoxical. What I mean is we pull back. First we're in the apartment. Cap and Falcon are mad. Then Leela loses it. Then this brick comes through and we go outside where the whole damn city has gone crazy. And, and Captain America just jumps right into this chaos. We're talking people rioting, looting, shooting guns in the air, and Cap's jumping right in the middle of it without a hesitation, and he gets a really good number of blows in. He gets a hit in with his shield on somebody's face, and then he fights Billy Bob Thornton from the movie Tombstone. Feels like he's playing cards with his sister's kids. And I will say this, nobody does chaos like Jack Kirby. Yes, these are static images, but Kirby excels at implied motion on the page, and this is seething with it. Bear in mind, of course, comics being a visual medium with no audio, you almost hear the chaos. The shattering glass, the screams, it's intense. And he even has Cap just pretty much dogpiled on at one point. It's very claustrophobic, it's hard to look at, which is the idea. Kirby totally nails it. And then Cap fights his way through that to the Mad Bomb, and we get this shot of Cap that is... frenzied. The madness has a hold of him. He's drooling. He looks ragged. But he fights through it because he's Captain Effing America. He grabs the Mad Bomb and we get this hardcore Kirby Crackle. If you've never heard of Kirby Crackle, I'll explain that in just a moment. And then Cap, still in a frenzy, starts smashing this thing, yelling, smash, smash. We're used to a controlled, disciplined Captain America. And here we basically have him taking the Hulk's shtick and just smashing something. Right there, we're already off balance. This is going to be a different kind of Captain America story. And if that wasn't enough, we pull back to this one-page splash, full page of the city behind Captain America and the people recovering, gaining their senses, their clothes are ripped, they're injured, and this shot of the city is jaw-dropping. Bear in mind, what we've looked at in this issue so far has been, at best, maybe 10 minutes, probably less. But the city is a disaster zone. Cars are on fire, buildings are burning, people are nearly torn up in only a few minutes. That's how powerful this bomb is. And the bomb in Captain America's hand would be about the size of about, I guess, a 20-ounce bottle of water, like an Aquafina bottle. Stick a pin in that and put it on the wall for a moment, because we're going to come back to this idea of exactly what Captain America is going up against. And then the Falcon catches up with Cap, and here comes this S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. I want to point out, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent doesn't give identification. He doesn't flash a badge or a code word, nothing to identify him as S.H.I.E.L.D. Captain America makes that assumption. So, for all we know, this guy is Hydra. He may be yelling Hail Hydra later down the road, talking about losing one limb, gaining two more. But Captain America and the Falcon listen to this guy because he shows him this bomb. This bomb is one of the weirdest things you'll see in comics. Because in that casing that's now smashed, you see a tiny simulated brain, like a brain nugget. Who thinks of a bomb with a brain in it beyond Jack Kirby? This is not the Kirby that we saw drawing and writing Captain America from the 40s, even though that was a monster tale. To be completely honest, this is a Kirby that's really gone out and created the new gods. Something that's probably one of the most psychedelic, strange ideas ever put to paper. And something that's, well... To give credit where it's due, one of the biggest space operas of all time. So we saw Kirby kind of starting to stretch that direction with some of his really out-of-the-box Fantastic Four ideas. Galactus, Silver Surfer, the Inhumans. But under DC, in the time he was away from Marvel, 
he went beyond. He went into his own sort of negative zone and came out with things that are just completely new and completely fresh, to be honest with you. So Cap and the Falcon go with the alleged S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, Hail Hydra, who takes him to this base. Again, no ID, no assertions, no proof he is from S.H.I.E.L.D. And they walk into a gauntlet. Oh, calamity, how could we have seen this coming? Of course, having gone through the synopsis, we know how this turns out, but at the moment reading it, I would have been just a little bit scared in my initial read-through if I didn't know how the story played. But I'm glad we got this action sequence because the book, even though really beat by beat, simply takes us on a journey of exposition, we get action along the way to keep us engaged and excited. It keeps the blood flowing fast. And Kirby using one of his greatest gifts, gives us this over-the-top physicality that made Marvel, well, Marvel. We have the Falcon leaping over these projectiles and Cap flailing to block himself from it. We're dealing with an action sequence in a very confined space, yet you feel that these two are really moving. They feel like the Gantry Lawrence cartoons. However, these are static images. That's why Jack is the king. And then after that, we get to Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger. For those that don't know who Kissinger is, he was the 56th Secretary of State under Nixon and Ford. He would have been the presiding Secretary of State at the time this issue was published. I'll let you know, Kissinger won the Nobel Peace Prize, so naturally he has Cap and Falcon attacked when they reach him by a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. And these poor, soulless S.H.I.E.L.D. agents just get their asses kicked. Luckily, the Peace Prize kicks in, apparently, because Kissinger calls them off and the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents go off to lick their wounds. And then we kind of see, well, exposition for the rest of the book leading up to giving us really the stakes of what we're dealing with. We see Miner's Junction, which is destroyed by Peanut, which is actually quite literally the size of a peanut, maybe a little bit bigger. And by destroyed, I mean leveled, devastated, gone. Complete disaster area. That's followed up by seeing a city of 200,000 destroyed by the dumpling, which would be roughly the size of the bomb Captain America had in his hand. There is nothing graphic here, there's no gore, and it's not even stated. But we're free to infer from this page, and just the imagery, and just the level of damage we're, we're talking about, that, well, there were casualties. Given what we saw in the riot, there's a very good chance that people were ripping themselves apart and that we're dealing with a lot of corpses in these towns. This is heavy stuff, and again, it's done subtly. A child wouldn't infer this, but as an adult, you begin thinking, oh, that had to be really devastating. There had to be death. This is basically Walking Dead before Robert Kirkman was born. So if you're thinking about the stakes of what Captain America is fighting, we're dealing with avoiding the Walking Dead. That's the best way I can convey it. Walking Dead on a massive, horrific scale. But what is Kirby really saying? Because in 1976, yeah, the Vietnam War was officially over, but the loom of that war was still hanging over, and sort of the battle between protesters, the government, the soldiers, all of that was still there. There was still this edge of contention between people. The world was still split. The country was very much split. It had just gone through a terrible, terrible period, a very volatile period. And we're coming up on the Bicentennial. Now, President Ford was planning to have the themes of rebirth and renewal in the Bicentennial. So if I'm reading into this too much, let me know. But it seems this is a commentary on the state of the United States. That all of this infighting and all of the volatile natures that were brought to the table over the last decade and change 
was tearing the country apart. So with the theme of rebirth and renewal, the idea of using Big Daddy, the big reveal, this missile that's basically the size of a grain silo, would basically ignite all of that that's still kind of fuming in the atmosphere, metaphorically speaking, and tear the country apart. It's drawing on something that was already within the people at this time. The divide and the anger and just the residue of everything that had come before. So it makes the Bicentennial symbolic as far as a target date because, again, rebirth, renewal, we're trying to move on from everything that happened. From Vietnam, from the more violent protests, the civil rights movement, everything that was pushing people's buttons. Kind of like Facebook today, except this was people face to face. And Big Daddy is something that can not only reawaken it, but enhance it and tear people apart, both figuratively and literally. So those are the stakes we're dealing with in this storyline. And Kirby is sure to not bury the lead. We know what's happening. We've seen the riot that this small bomb can bring. So imagine the magnitude of Big Daddy. As stated, this issue is primarily exposition. It's a good prologue to where Captain America and the Falcon are going to go next. It succeeds on every level because it's readable in itself. We have several action sequences. But beat for beat, we're just simply moving to, well, the end here, where we find out this is the big bad. So it's a riveting and exciting issue, and it drives you directly to the next. Which is where we're going to go when the search for Big Daddy begins in Captain America and the Falcon number 194. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go! Up! Up! And away! Atomic batteries. Turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. Captain America and the Falcon number 194 bore a February 1976 cover date. The cover features Captain America about to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a large purple monster, very Frankenstein, but the monster has the Falcon in his clutches, and troops in futuristic uniforms watch the spectacle from the top of a hill. Now, this is an interesting cover because it once again draws your eye to Captain America. Not only is he, well, the thing that stands out the most in the cover because of his bright colors, but because of the way the monster is posed and the way it's sort of laid out, Everything moves from the upper right of the cover to the lower left where Captain America is there with his shield in hand. It naturally draws the eye to Captain America. 
Now, thankfully, when last issue only had Captain America as an icon box at the top, now we get both Cap and Falcon, which is the way it should be alongside the trade dress, which does include the Falcon's name once again. Now, reading this digitally is always kind of a crapshoot because, well, digital coloring and recoloring, I should say, can either make a cover look sharp and great or just completely muddy it up. Thankfully, here it enhances. Everything stands out. Everything is crisp. It is a gorgeous reproduction. And the monster here evokes Kirby's monster horror comic roots. And by proxy, Captain America's monster comic roots, since his early tales had him going up against, well, monsters, witches, things of that nature. The story inside is from the same creative team as issue number 193. It is entitled The Trojan Horde, and just like 193, it's reprinted in Captain America and Falcon, Mad Bomb, the trade paperback, still available. And from the official index to the Marvel Universe, the synopsis reads thusly. At Mad Bomb Control, Captain America and Falcon receive the maximum charge from S.H.I.E.L.D.'s Brain Bolt machine in order to prepare them for their upcoming mission. Meanwhile, William Torrey, who wishes to return the USA to a pre-American Revolution aristocracy, tells the leader of his mercenaries, General Hessian, that he seeks revenge on Steve Rogers, whose Continental Army ancestor killed Sir William Torrey in a duel after Torrey tried to warn the British of George Washington's approach. Following an SOS from a missing S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, Cap and Falcon, wearing flight suits, fly to the South Dakota Badlands. Landing, they encounter a mutated giant and discover foam rubber boulders concealing the entrance to an underground base. Royalist mercenaries emerge and herd the giant inside and then use a mind wave launcher on Cap and Falcon. Luckily, our heroes are immune to this because of their treatment in the brain bolt machine, so they feign unconsciousness and allow themselves to be captured. The mercenaries take them to their manual labor pool, housing the missing shield agents, now turned into freakish mutations by royalist scientists in their treatment room. Removing their flight suits to reveal their costumes underneath, Cap and Falcon prepare for action. Unlike the last issue, this story actually jumps right into the story on the first page, with Cap and Falcon wearing their brain bolt helmets, a little piece of Kirby tech. And I find myself wondering why their helmets don't include bite plates. Because what we're dealing with is pretty much an analog for electroshock therapy, and, well, dental hygiene is important. We don't want Cap with cracked teeth. But while we jump in in the first page, the two-page splash gives us exposition, setting up everything that was set up last issue. And I'll tell you this, two pages of exposition would normally have me rolling my eyes, but it's done in pretty much a pinup style. And exposition has never looked so gorgeous. We see rioters, burning cities, the comparison of the mad bombs themselves and Captain America up against a wall dealing with all of this. Again, Kirby is making sure that we know the stakes, and the stakes are complete and total annihilation of the United States. And since our character is, of course, patriotic theme, this is something he takes to heart. That doesn't stop Cap from getting mouthy on the next page, or at least I'm reading it as mouthy since there's no voice inflection in comics, because the guard asks if he and the Falcon are ready, and Cap replies, uh, yes, basically saying, yeah, I'm Captain America, throw it at me, I got this, come at me, bro. And then we get a shot of the brain bolt, and we get full-on Kirby Crackle. I mean, hardcore. Now, I want to explain what Kirby Crackle is. It's very important. You've seen it. If you don't know what it is, it will become immediately familiar as soon as I describe it. Kirby Crackle is sort of small, haphazard bubbles, apparently flecked on from a brush, and they exist within an energy band, working with the color. And the thing about this effect is, it really looks like it crackles. 
I know we're talking about a visual medium conveying a sound effect, which shouldn't work, but it does. It really looks like it crackles and pops. I don't know if it snaps. We're not confirmed on the snap. It's not quite Rice Krispies. But visually, it would almost look like a bunch of exploding Rice Krispies. That's probably the best way I can describe it. So while Cap and the Falcon are getting their brains blasted, which sounds kind of lewd, we visit with essentially our villains, Tori and Hessian. Now, Hessian enters first and gets named. It's spelled differently, but it's a direct reference to Hessians. These were German auxiliary soldiers that basically the British monarchy rented out during the Revolutionary War to fight against us. Likewise, Tory, spelled differently, was a term that came from outlaw, was I guess the etymology, but it was really applied to somebody royal to the British monarchy, especially during the Revolutionary War when this would have definitely been a dividing factor between people. We paint the picture in the Revolutionary War that everybody was on board, that we really wanted this freedom. But there were people who were genuinely happy. They didn't mind the taxes. They didn't want to rock the boat. Some people for their own safety, some people for their own gain. So these two names have direct references to Revolutionary War, which is what was being celebrated in the Bicentennial. See how it all ties together. But this is interesting not just because of the names and the historical background, but because Cap now has a personal stake in these two, specifically in Tory. Cap's ancestor killed Tory's ancestor. And Tory, for some reason, even though it's 1976, 200 years later, can't quite let that go. But secondly, this is interesting because Cap's past, his ancestors, have patriotism running through them. When we first met Steve Rogers, he wanted to serve, he wanted to be a man, he wanted to do the right thing. He just did not have the ability due to, well, illness. So we see clearly that this is something that runs through their family. It would have been something instilled in Steve when he was young. Probably based on that ancestor. And then we switch back to Cap and the Falcon, after their brain blasts, recovering, and Steve has had a dream about his ancestor. He also mentions his ancestor left him a diary. How is that going to play out? Well, you'll see. And then we get the SOS, and Cap and Falcon are on their way very early into the issue. And this skimmer is just a gorgeous piece of Kirby Tech. Kirby Tech is another phrase you've probably heard, you may not be able to identify. It's exactly as it sounds. Kirby was able to take the most ridiculous idea in a technological device and make it plausible visually. And he did this by adding such details and such balance to the designs that you actually believe these machines could exist in the real world, even though they would do ridiculous things, such as brain blasts or skimmers. When we get to the giant on the cover, not only is he not purple, he is indeed flesh-colored, but the guy is so big that when the wing clips him, he breaks the wing. He breaks the wing. His, this creature helps the ship crash. So now Cap and the Falcon are, well, stuck in the middle of the Badlands. And what does Steve decide to do? He decides to throw around some foam rubber boulders. Sure, Steve, that's right. We're on a covert mission of the utmost importance. The entire country is at stake. Let's play a game of catch. And then we get a closer look at the giant who is kind of a childlike man monster thing. He's basically sloth from the Goonies. And you realize suddenly that, oh no, there's not going to be a fight between Cap and the monster. Well, that's a little less exciting, so the cover somewhat lied, but the guards are there. That's right, the guards in their phallic helmets. They rise up, and they warn them that they will shoot. Well, it's better these guys than Estelle Getty. Now, much like last issue, what we're dealing with is actually a slow burn, a simple progression to get to this destination being the base. But we can't just have a simple point A to point B. We can't draw the line on the map Indiana Jones style. 
Because even though, really, we're slowly going through this story, progressing little by little each issue, we get excitement along the way, such as a fight with these guards. This could have simply been, oh, let's put our hands up and the guards would march us in. Instead, we get a very dynamic, very cool fight. Now, I made the joke about the guards' uniforms having phallic helmets. I stand by that. But the uniforms are not only reminiscent of the Guardian, which was another Joe Simon Jack Kirby creation, and something Kirby had just unearthed over in Jimmy Olsen along with the Newsboy Legion, but their colors actually remind me a lot of Parademons from his fourth world universe. Now, we probably think of Parademons more along the lines of the superpowers, but they looked quite different. They looked a little bit more humanoid in the comics. And this design is a very cool amalgam of both of those and kind of evokes the right mood. If you'd been reading New Gods, if you'd been reading Jimmy Olsen, you could immediately recognize these guys and kind of know at least the type of villains we're working with. Of course, once we go in, we see them marching and I can't help but hear the call of the Wicked Witch's guards from Wizard of Oz. And we enter the holding cell. Now, the cell itself is extremely cool. I mean, it's a simple, simple setup. But its inhabitants are so mutated and so unattractive and so outworldish that it feels a bit like the Star Wars cantina. With this issue, it feels less superhero-y and more sci-fi, which, of course, Kirby had just come off the New Gods recently. So that makes sense that that's kind of the tone he's going with. And we find out that these guys are the results of the treatment room. These were S.H.I.E.L.D. agents sent in that were normal men, and they come out as these drooling, mutated, deformed creatures. And that's what makes this idea of the treatment room really scary. Because we see people going in, we see what they are when they come out, we don't see what happens in the room. We don't know what this treatment entails at this point. But knowing what we see with these strange-looking inhabitants, you know what's happening in the middle between point A and point B, must be very freaky. And the odd thing is, we don't see until the end Captain America and the Falcon in costume in action. They fight in their flight suits, they wear the costumes while getting brain blasts, but up until this point, the heroes have been, well, out of action. At least in costume. But as they're changing clothes, I look at Steve, and I see this shield flush on his back. And I wonder, did the guards frisk them? Did they check them? Because they would have noticed a turtle shell on the back. But the shield kind of fits where it needs to fit, even when it doesn't quite work. Kind of like on Highlander the series, there are outfits where, well, you're not hiding a sword in that. Sorry. But you get this thrill of excitement, and we get to this damn good cliffhanger again. Because now we're ready for action. We're going to see what the world of 1984 is like, which is a strange statement in 2015. Again, we're dealing with a slow burn. We're moving slowly forward. However, these individual issues, and as a duo, really keep your attention. They're exciting, even if the plot point to plot point progression is a slow burn. But I believe it is meant to be a slow burn because suspense is building. As more time passes, we get closer to the bicentennial and we're no closer to the mad bomb. We're not any closer to Big Daddy just yet. But I don't know about you, but I'm excited to take a look at what's inside this base. However, that's going to have to wait for next time, because we've come to the end of this episode of Dave's Captain America Spectacular. To tease you a little bit about next time, we're going to find out who is Tinkerbell, and what is a kill derby, and what does the world of 1984 look like, and just how is James Caan, of all people, tied into all of this. All of that and more next time. Until then, keep slinging those shields, true believers. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you for listening.
Jeffy's on your trail. All you rotten wall ass schemes will lead to no avail. Tell the burly masters that they'd better fight no more. Can't be in his headlights, we'll be knocking at the door. Cause I'm captured.